This is the Becoming Educated podcast. Our mission is to inform educators, challenge their thinking, and inspire them to teach with joy. So today on the Becoming Educated podcast, I am joined by the Head of English and Head of Research at the Mountbatten School, the organiser of the Teaching and Learning Takeover Conference, which has provided free CPD for thousands of teachers, and the author of the Bloomsbury CPD book, Research Informed Practice, Jennifer Ludgate. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh no, thank you for having me. Um, just, to, just to ease us into the, the interview today, could you share a little bit about, about you and your career today? Uh, yes, so I went into teaching after um, completing my master's in 2010. Um, I originally started work almost accidentally um, as, a, as a teaching assistant. Um, I wasn't entirely sure that I wanted to be a teacher. If anything, actually, I tried to avoid it for a really long time. Um, I think when I was little, I used to force my brothers to sit down and uh, draw them things on a little whiteboard and, and make them listen uh, I've always been incredibly bossy but I um people used to say to me oh you know you're going to be a teacher and um as well as being bossy I'm also quite stubborn so I don't like being told what to do and uh so I thought no I'm not going to do that um but yeah I started as a teaching assistant I really loved it and then by the time it got to Christmas of the first year as a teaching assistant I decided uh, this is what I want to do um and I trained through the GTP route which is kind of the old version of schools direct and skit and so on um and i was lucky enough to get a place actually at the school that i'm still at today so i've only actually taught um at my uh, current school i was a teaching assistant at a different school um and then obviously i had training at different places as well but i've kind of gone through different uh iterations of, of roles there but always tried to stay sort of firmly within the english department um but I've been really lucky to have opportunities in the teaching and learning department as well. And as you mentioned, um, I had a, a sort of brief stint as the head of research, which is what kind of uh, began uh, this thinking and this kind of route that I've now gone down. But I'm really lucky to be uh, head of English at the moment. I really, really enjoy that position. So hopefully stay with it for a little bit longer. Brilliant. No, it's great that you've managed to stay so long at, at one school and, and do so much. Um, so we're going to base the, the conversation today around your book. And as I mentioned to you before, I absolutely loved your book and I'm using it to shape my own professional development. So could you could you share why you decided to write the book? Absolutely. So it was a bit of a surprise to me <laughs> in some respects, the idea of writing a book. But I've always been really interested in how teachers can use research in their classroom. Um, I think that really comes from me always asking why we are doing things, um, playing devil's advocate a little bit, annoying people when doing that as well. Um, sometimes the reason is just because and you just have to get on with it. Um, but essentially what happened was there was a real logic that appealed to me, which came with this idea of educational research. And so when I started looking into it more, going to uh, various conferences such as Research Ed, um, that idea of logic and justification really appealed to me and not just this idea of we do this because. Um, I'd worked with Bloomsbury as they were one of our sponsors for TLT and um, they'd been really supportive and uh, so they contacted me saying they're expanding the series and would I be interested? So it, it, again, it came as a bit of a surprise. Um, the idea of writing a book sounds wonderful when someone asks you um the reality of it is actually really difficult um but i am glad i did it and actually i think it just really forces you to reflect and consider all of the things that you've been looking at very carefully and not only reading books but writing a book i think helps you become a better practitioner brilliant thank you and um, we're gonna chat a little bit more of the contents of the book and and your book is, is split into two parts, um, to teach yourself and then to train others. Uh, why did you write it like that? So all of the Bloomsbury CPD library books have that same format. Um, and it's a format that I think works really well. I'd actually read um, two or three, I think, of the Bloomsbury series before I was even contacted. And the reason I quite liked that uh 
format is because the first part is really about self-reflection. Um, it's about pausing, slowing down, uh, taking stock of what you currently do. And one of the reasons I quite like that first part of the, of the books, uh, essentially that teach yourself section, it's, it's not just teaching yourself, it is reflecting, like I said, on things that you currently do, spotting your own gaps without being sort of forced to think about them by somebody else. Um, and it allows you to prioritise as well. What is it that actually you want to get out of this particular text? So, for example, the first one I think I read was um, by the series editor, Sarah Finlater, and she had uh, written the book in a way that was just made it really easy to sort of dip in and out of, really accessible, but again, forced you to stop and to think. And when we were looking at techniques uh, as a department on marking and feedback, that was one of the first books I would go to, to say, I know there's something in here, there's a nugget in here that I can have a look at and I can take it away and I can teach myself that. Um, the second book that I looked at actually um, was Summer Turner's book on curriculum design. And I was looking at around uh, the time that we were rewriting our Key Stage 3 curriculum. And again, I found it really helpful to have everything summarised so clearly. Um, and that was the first time that I completed the, the questionnaire as well. Um, and I found that really, really useful, again, to try and reflect. The second part of the book is... Um, as you mentioned, essentially about teaching and training or training others on what you have learned. Um, and I think at any point in your career, you need advice on how to work with other people because people are, um, you know, often difficult to manage. They can obviously will have different opinions to you. You need a lot of guidance and advice on how to, to manage just whether it be one individual or 15 individuals especially if you're trying to persuade people to sort of get on board with your point of view. That doesn't come naturally to many of us um, and certainly doesn't always come naturally to me. And I know that I needed to, to read about the best way to do that, depending on what I was doing. Um, and again, I found it really helpful to do that when I was writing uh, this section, just to think about like, how would I explain that to this person and how would I explain it to someone else and what things do I need to bear in mind before I go and do it? So I think what, is brilliant about the way in which the books are designed is that idea that you can dip in and out of the beginning but once you've had time to embed ideas and really think about them the second part becomes even more helpful and it's not all squashed together in the same chapter you don't have to try and work out for yourself right which bit do I need now which bit do I need later there's a lot of clarity to the way in which the books are designed and um, hence why I decided to obviously keep going down that route. So in the in the first part of, of the book, you start looking into what research informed practice is. Um, what, what exactly is it in teaching? So research informed practice is essentially sort of allowing yourself the time to consider education, educational research, I believe, within your own context. So it's not what I'd call endorsing research driven practice or research only practice. Um, it was something I struggled with a lot at the beginning of writing the book. I don't want people to think that I'm advocating a one-size-fits-all approach. Um, and there is a lot of discussion at the beginning of the book as well between what it means to be research-informed or evidence-informed. And that's something that I found really very useful to consider. And I always come back to when I'm talking to people about this or running CPD. And I mentioned, most importantly, that being research-informed the research is a section, a part of a large part, but a small part of being evidence uh, at the same time of being evidence formed, because it's really important that we don't undervalue people's professional experience. And it's so important that we take that into account when we're looking at how the research can work in a particular context. So to me, to be informed means to have access to the knowledge, to know how to get hold of it if you need to, um, to understand elements of it. But in practice, it has to be useful, it has to be realistic, and it has to fit your particular context and needs. So, so thinking about what you said there with research-informed practice, evidence-informed, and what it actually means to be research-informed, why is it then important that a teacher is research-informed? I think there are numerous reasons why this is uh, important. Predominantly because we are making decisions, you know, 
hundreds, thousands of times a day. Um, many of those decisions are, are minute and don't necessarily have an impact on students' progress. A lot of them have an impact on students' well-being, for example, instead. But when we are making decisions that are going to affect our students' understanding, their knowledge, their skills that we want them to apply in that moment and in the future as well, we need to make sure that we're making decisions that are better than just best guesses. Um, and I know I spent a lot of uh, time, particularly early in my career, and still do it sometimes, um, making decisions just based on a split-second decision. I think when you become more research-informed, you can still make these decisions very quickly and sort of without a fuss, but you know that having read or understood or uh, trialled a particular idea, that if you make this decision in this way, the outcome is going to be this or as close to that as you can possibly hope it to be. Um, I think if we are more research informed, then we kind of know that um, our decisions are being made carefully as well as quickly. Um, of course, there's lots of stories, anecdotes. Um, everybody's got something to say about a fad that they've once put in place in their classroom and sort of disasters that have been and gone. Um, some of those fads, as we know, continue till this day. Um, I think we need to be very careful that research and education doesn't become one of those and uh, I think the only way to stop that is to make sure that we don't put in place things that we've read the night before the next day without considering carefully what the steps are and everything has to be put into your particular school's context and has to be considered very, very carefully if schools just go around sort of changing things based on one piece of research, one paper, one article, one headline, um, which is said to be research informed, then then this is just going to become a fad as well. And we need to make sure that that doesn't happen. So it's about almost giving teachers autonomy and making sure that they really are the professionals in the classroom and have the skills and accessibility to make decisions that will work for their students. I think that's why it's so important that everybody has the opportunity to become research informed. Actually, I like that that idea, and, and I've spoken to quite a few people with the idea of the teacher, teach, we need to see view the teachers again as, as the experts in the classrooms. And if, if mm -hmm. we can be research informed and know that what we're doing in the classroom will truly benefit the children, then will hopefully make lear the learning experience a really enriching one. And you mentioned there about context in, in the, being it right for your school and you wrote a little bit about how how teachers can find out if their school is willing to become research informed how do we know if a, if a school is willing to do that i think it very much depends on your relationship with the leaders and management in your school i think if those leaders um demonstrate that they are open to discussion with others, demonstrates that they are open to alternatives, then you know that you've got a school that is able to and happy to consider research in practice. You really need collaboration to be part of sort of the ethos of the decision making. That doesn't mean that every single decision that comes down from SLT should have been uh, consulted with all the staff all of the time. Uh, that that isn't necessary, necessary uh, in order to be research informed. But if you know that your voice uh, will be listened to in some ways, then that can be a really good starting point. I think quite often if you are unsure if your school is open and willing to be research informed, maybe just consider some of the policies or practices that have been put in place over time. Have they stayed the same for the last four, five, six years? Um, and nobody has ever questioned them or been willing to, to change them or adapt them, depending on the needs of your students at that time? Or actually, does it seem to be that year on year, small things are reflected upon and evaluated and changed? And if that's the case, then I think we're in a really lucky position because you've got somewhere where you can go and speak to uh, the leaders and say, look, I know we have this particular process in place, but I've been reading about X, Y and Z, and I think it might be worth trialling this particular uh, strategy or uh, I know that we've suggested lessons should be done in this way but what about if we were to trial this and if you find that your leaders are open to discussion collaborative use evaluative language in particular in, in the way in which they approach their uh, procedures and policies then I think you've got a really good um, starting point 
in order to open up those discussions. It goes the other way as well, though. <laughs> you don't want to necessarily be, uh, obviously, I feel working in a school where everything is constantly changing, where decisions are simply, again, following the headlines, um, where one week you've got to do this in your lesson and the next week you've got to do something else that is going too far in the other direction. You need a, a happy medium between the two. I'd absolutely, I'd absolutely agree with, with that. And I know that some of the leaders that I've worked with, they're, they're definitely willing to, to try things, but obviously trying to keep things to stay the same because there is no point in disrupting a school and changing things all the time True. based on a, on a whim or what, what the, a member of the SLT happened to read on a, on a Sunday night before they came in the Monday morning. Um, <laughs> Early on in the book, you asked the reader to answer 16 self-reflection questions. And I, and I really enjoyed going through them and, and found out a little bit about my, my own practice and where I'm at just now. Uh, how did you go about creating these questions? I'd say the first sort of half a dozen were really easy. They were kind of questions that I think I asked myself quite a lot uh, about why I'm doing something in the classroom or whether or not I should talk to somebody else about this and get their opinion. Um, and then I actually found it quite difficult to come up with some of the other questions because you have to do it very much based on on your own mistakes and your own findings. And you've also got to be really honest with yourself. So um, I had to be really honest with myself with writing them as well as if I would be answering them. Um, questions, for example, like uh, I think one of them was about how do I evaluate strategies that I, I put into the classroom I've purposely implemented them. I've decided, right, I've, I've read about this. I'm going to do this. And then I trial it. And one of the questions I ask is, you know, how do you quality assure and evaluate a strategy that you've purposely implemented in the classroom? And it took some time to sort of both come up with that question, but also because I had to think, gosh, that's something I've not always done. I have definitely implemented strategies and thought after a short amount of lessons right that's not working I'm not going to carry on with it or I've carried on implementing something against my better judgment um, maybe because someone else has tried it or it, it looked particularly good so I think it, it, it requires quite a lot of honesty to sort of come up with those questions um, and a lot of them are are fairly pointed in that they are sort of suggesting these are the most important things to think about this is where you need to ask yourself why are you doing X? Um, and then you need to be quite critical of your own choices as well. And I think sometimes we're too quick to be critical of others' choices in their classrooms. And, uh, you know, particularly we see that kind of thing on Twitter all the time. People saying, I've decided to do this. And people will jump on and say, hey, you can't do it that way or you haven't thought about this. We are not so good at necessarily doing it back to ourselves so I think having something like the questionnaire both at the beginning and the end of the book is is really important and to be really honest when you're answering those as well um is absolutely vital because the whole you know no one's expecting you to sort of then publish your your responses to that it's just about getting you to the point to think about like what are my next steps going to be um but yeah it was it was tough creating those questions I have to say it was it was tough trying to trying to be honest with them and Get out really to really truly understand where, where where I was at and with with my thinking and my my practice and and where I was in terms of being research informed in what I was doing. So it, doing it at the start and doing it at the end, I definitely felt as I as I went through because I find myself dipping in and out of the book and, and reading mm. some of the things. We're going to come back to some of the things you put in there and reading some of the the blogs and articles you suggested, and then that kind of moving my thinking forward. Um, you encourage your readers to, to build a network and you suggest a number of, of Twitter personalities. How has Twitter helped you in, in your professional development? I find that um, phrase Twitter personality is quite a funny thing to think about, isn't it? Because uh, I'm not even sure what that means. I think essentially it means that everybody's not quite what they seem. Um, and, you know, we can make judgments about what people are really like, but we don't actually know. Twitter has beyond all doubt been it'd been a huge catalyst um in terms of my thinking and I would say you know in terms of my professional development um I think I've I've been on Twitter too long to remember really but in my first year of teaching it sort of helped me to have discussions that I wasn't having at school at the time um I I trained uh with with a very different team to the one that I have 
uh, now, even though I'm in the same school and uh, with a lot of very experienced teachers who then went on to retirement and they were excellent. Like they, I couldn't have had better uh, colleagues around me. But the idea of talking to somebody in 140 characters, um, you know, at a time seemed, well, was laughable to most of them and um, was something that they just thought was a bit bizarre. But um, much against the sort of uh, online advice that we give today uh, to our students, I did use Twitter as an opportunity to to find out about events, to go to them on my own, (laughs) meet people that I'd never met before. Um, And it did open up all sorts of, opportunities uh, for me from some of the first events that I, I went to with a pedagogy event they were absolutely excellent um it's how I met David Fawcett who um we then went on to uh run the teaching learning takeover together we, we just basically said oh we're both going to this event and uh, got on the same train and that was that um so it's a really encouraging place um if you look in the right places and it's also a really excellent place to share your thoughts and ideas and get feedback on them from people who, again, are in very different contexts to you, but may have much more experience in that particular area. Um, I think people can think you're a little bit mad. I think sometimes people, we forget that not everybody is part of that discussion. Um, but if you use it wisely and use it for collaboration, I think it can have absolutely huge benefits. And I certainly have a huge amount to sort of thank it for because again without those connections um without finding out about those events I'm not sure how else I would have even known that those conferences were happening that those after school events were happening if it wasn't for Twitter so it's a really really encouraging place and it it just still surprised me when I find out that people don't use it but of course that actually uh, I think it is only a minority of teachers that are using it so I'd encourage everybody to try and get involved if they can. No, definitely. I think when I when I talk about the conversation I have on Twitter, I, there are people in the in my school that look at me like, "What is tw- what is Twitter? <laughs> what what? Who are you chatting to? And, and where are you getting this from?" And um, Twitter's act, Twitter's helped me me massively in in my in my career so far, and it's afforded me a lot of opportunities through this podcast. Is is a shine, mm-hmm. fine example. I first contacted people like yourself on on Twitter, so I'd highly recommend people getting mm-hmm. getting board board with that. And there are some very positive people you can you follow and, and learn from so kind of we've, we've spoken about the first part of your book about being research informed and self-reflection and building that network so how would you then encourage a teacher to, to begin engaging with research are there certain apps or websites that you would recommend for them to start with definitely i think um it very much depends on where you are in your current journey obviously but if this was for uh somebody who thought, you know, what do you mean by research and informed practice? What What is this term that you're sort of banding around? What is research ed? Um, how can research help me? Then I think there are a few uh, places that, that are the most uh, beneficial places to start. So if you haven't spent any time basically just sort of looking around the, the EEF, the Education Endowment Funds website, I think it's worth, and their toolkit, just spending some time um, looking at the advice they give, looking at how the website works and how the toolkit works as well. They have so many different sort of facets to to the response that they have. And they have things such as obviously a newsletter that comes out, which is really simple to sign up to. So you get those bite-sized chunks just coming into your inbox every week. Um, and again, if you've got a particular problem, issue, area of pedagogy that you want to learn a bit more about you can just search and it will come up with the the trials that they have done it will talk about the effectiveness of those trials and you can see whether or not you want to put any further time into using any of those particular strategies um there's this i i just mentioned there about sort of newsletters and i found those really really helpful um so there's a newsletter called the best evidence in brief which comes out um i want to say on tuesdays every week i can't remember what day it comes out uh, from the IEE and they um, again just summarise some of the top uh, pieces of news and then they give you links to the actual evidence and the research and you can make a decision as to whether or not you just want to read that article at that moment or if you want to look into it in a little bit more detail. Um, it, it's a funny one but the Teacher Tap app it can be a really useful uh, place to start as well. Um, 
it doesn't always necessarily link to research explicitly, but many of the blogs that they recommend or the texts that they recommend after you've answered your three questions a day, um, which I think satisfies some sort of teacher obsession with knowing what other people are doing as well when it gives you the results of what's happening around the country. Um, that can be a really, really easy and useful way in. Um, it doesn't need to be something particularly onerous. It just needs to be something quick and easy that you're going to look at. Um, magazines as well. So there are um, two particular magazines I'd recommend. So the Research Edge magazine you can sign up for online. Um, and that comes again with uh, articles, but often at the end of those articles are a series of links to again, the actual research you might want to find or further reading. So you can take it as far as you want. Um, and the Chartered College of Teaching Impact magazine as well is always um, is very beautifully presented for one thing, but also has um, some really excellent articles and they're always thematically linked. So you can decide whether or not you, you know, want to dive into that. And um, I'd really encourage people to consider talking to their schools about these things. So if any of them have a particular cost often the costs are much less if you do it as a school. Um, so it might be worth looking into whether or not that's a good starting point. You could talk to people who are involved with teaching and learning your CD leadership team and say, look, I'm, I'm really interested in this, but I would quite like to be able to share it with my colleagues as well. So financially, the best way of moving forward is to sign up as a school um, because it can prove quite expensive if you're constantly trying to find access to things that are maybe behind firewalls and, and, and have a payment attached to them. So, but magazines, newsletters and, and apps absolutely can be a, a key way into becoming more research informed. A lot, there's a lot in there, um, but a lot, <laughs> Sorry. A, I know a lot of things that hopefully people listening can, can go off and, and, and find their way through. And it's all things that, that I, that I've engaged with and, and, I'm like you, I love seeing the results to the questions on teacher staff and seeing what other people are thinking and, and, and where we sit. I'm, what, cause I'm, what I'm really fascinated in the, right now in terms of kind of the differences and similarities between the between England, England, Wales and, and Scotland and how we're all mm. doing different things, but we have the same kind of issues across our education system, but yet our education systems claim to be very different. Um, <laughs> you offer in each chapter of the book a book club recommendation and a blogger's corner. I mean, I've absolutely, I've loved looking through them. As I said to you, to offer it, I stopped at every chapter. I went and looked at every book and, and every blog and, and thought, I'm going to read them all. And I'm still working my way through most of them, but I've really enjoyed them. Which which ones were, of them are your favourites? and why and if you were to encourage a teacher just to only read a few what would they be um oh, that's really difficult so essentially this came out of the fact that i used to find i was getting recommendations for lots of things that again twitter was a big part in this so i'd see people saying i've read this i've done uh, you know I've bought this book and i'd be thinking right i don't have time right now to go and read that I don't have time right now to necessarily order that book but I don't want to forget about it so I just used to keep a, a word document essentially of these blogs and these books that I wanted to read and buy um, and I still sort of do that a little bit but actually now I try to use them um, in the way that I then share them with my department so we have like a weekly newsletter that goes out um, so a lot of them actually are, are fairly old in some ways. Um, and I kind of looked back at that list and thought which ones have been most useful for me over time. But I think there's a couple in the book that I, I really enjoyed uh, reading. And actually some of them were, were brand new. So uh, John Bruskell's had one on a not how to use knowledge organisers in primary schools. And although that, you know, I'm a secondary school teacher and, and I wouldn't necessarily go out and look for blogs or articles on primary school teaching, I found that a really useful read um, and again part of something that's come out of the book has been that there are so many similarities obviously between primary and secondary teaching and that we need to maybe make a little bit more of that and if we know more about what each other's you know uh, approaches are then that can only be of benefit to to the students so I thought it was really interesting to, to read about how knowledge organisers are being used in primary because I'd only ever considered them as a sort of secondary um, tool and strategy um, there's also a blog in there that um, is, is I, I think I call it a cautionary blog uh, by Nick Rose which uses this term avoiding lethal mutations um, 
which is um, it's really short, really, really short, but it's something I read uh, before I started writing, and it uh, refers to something that sort of uh, Dillian Williams talks about, about how great ideas are never, I think he uses the term plug and play, and that is a phrase that stayed with me a little bit. So when I see an idea or I get sort of tempted to magpie something or I see other people do that, um, I just think of that idea that if it's something great, if it's something that's really going to have an impact and work, then it needs to be more to it than simply being able to do it in that moment, 20 minutes after having read about it. Uh, it's going to take more thought. It's going to be, you've got to be a little bit more cautious with how you are uh, applying strategies. So um, those two blogs in particular, and then I've um, referenced quite a lot throughout the book, uh, work by Harry Fletcher Wood, who I just absolutely adore his style of writing. It's so clear. Um, it makes so much sense. It almost annoys you uh, because you think, I really should have worked that out for myself. Um, and we invited Harry to talk, uh, I think, every year that we ran TLT, and he was always so uh, magnanimous in what he was doing, but also just so wise. And um, I really enjoyed reading all of the books that have come out. Um, I'm a big one for lists, as I imagine lots of teachers are. So I always enjoyed reading his ticked off uh, book and applying some of the sort of the, the strategies in that. Um, and his new or the most recent book, um, Responsive Teaching, as well. Again, it just makes so much sense. Um, so there are quite a lot of recommendations to, to Harry's work in there as well. But you're right. I think one of the most useful things sometimes about reading uh, one book is actually the other books that end, other texts that it it allows you to uh, consider and then you go off and read them as well. It can be really, really helpful. And, and I've found that the, the more I've read, the more edgy books, or I think uh, Tom Bennett would refer to me as a, right now as, a, as an edgy nerd, um, the, more books, <laughs> the more books that, I, that I've read, there's a lot of similarities in the, in the recommendations and the blogs and the articles and the people they recommend. Uh, I mean, I've been trying to chase Harry Fletcherwood for quite a while because, like you, his, his books are just they're 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 outstanding and, and they are, they do make you think. Like I, I wish I thought of that. Um, <laughs> kind of moving on to more of the the research and, and case studies. Um, what key studies and articles would you recommend for a teacher like beginning their research journey? Um, so in the book, I, I've basically written a chapter that provides a summary of, of some of the key and um, most available and well-known research that I, I believe that teachers who want to start this journey should begin with. Um, again, the um, I refer to the EEF reports, one in particular on metacognition, because I felt that that was a term that was being bandied around at the time I was writing, um, often misunderstood. Um, our school had just invested um in visualizers for every classroom, rightly so. They are our greatest asset and I absolutely love them. Um, but I would hear people say things like, I'm now doing metacognition. I was like, no, you've just turned your visual visualizer on. That's slightly different. And uh, um, I think that report when it came out was just really enlightening. And I love the way in which those reports often have the summary sheet as well attached to them. So you can kind of use that as an in with people and then go on and look at the report um, in full detail. So certainly the EEF report on metacognition, I think is a key one. Obviously, um, Rosenstein's sort of principles as well. So I think they can be uh, found in terms of the, the actual research document, but also there are books now being written about them. Um, and I also recommend the Sutton Trust report, the one from 2014, uh, written by Rob Coe and, and lots of other people called What Makes Great Teaching. It's just a really well-written piece, really clear, broken down into key stages. Um, we've used some of it, uh, not all of it before, in things at our journal club at school. So you can just take a section of that and you can discuss that with colleagues. It doesn't have to be the full sort of 28 page document in one go so there are a couple of, of key pieces that I would suggest people look at but again like we were saying about the books what you tend to find is that one leads to another um, but I think it's really good to start with something that isn't too overwhelming isn't uh, necessarily hugely complex but also certainly in terms of length you need something that teachers can actually get to grips with because time is a big factor here and you want to be able to, to read something that is going to help you think and help you improve but isn't going to take you all weekend to get through. 
I like that one. It's not going to take you all weekend. I, I like that. You <laughs> that up there. Um, in your putting research into practice sex, sex, section, sorry, you offer up some case studies for seven teaching strategies. Uh, what case study stands out to you the most amongst those seven? Um, with the case studies, I think the lovely thing was to hear about people's mistakes that they've made and how they would do things differently if they were going to do them again. And so I was really very lucky to have teachers from lots of different subjects and different um, age groups as well uh, contribute to those case studies. Um, I really enjoyed reading the ones uh, about hinge questions. So uh, Mark Enzo and Chloe Woodhouse both wrote um, about their strategies when using hinge questions and they're, they're, they're similar but different. So Mark teaches geography, Chloe teaches English um, in sec at secondary level. So those again allowed a, just a slightly different perspective on how they would work um, hinge questions into their lessons, whether or not they would prepare them beforehand and the kind of key factors that they'd have when creating them. Um, both of them are also brilliant writers. So again, there was, there was real clarity in their case studies. Um, and I think something such as hinge questions again is something that we could jump to try and include the next day after reading about it but they really um advocate spending a little bit of time planning our questions beforehand thinking about the misconceptions that students might have in advance and why we'd be using a particular answers in, in terms of trying to judge both their prior knowledge and judge um and assess their learning as, as we're teaching i also really liked um the examples that we had from primary so um there was one from uh, James Grocott. He wrote about whole class feedback. And again, um, something I took away from that is this idea he has about some fit activities um, or dirt activities, as you might call them. Um, There's something we've always done, but he really breaks down how whole class feedback can, can feed into that and how his students now sound like they are really well trained in that process. Um, and so again, that that ability to take something from primary and apply it to a secondary setting, I think was was really helpful. But I was very lucky to have um, teachers writing from all different subjects, so it's not just from my uh, English hat uh, experience. There was sort of teachers from science teachers, RE, art, primary, like I mentioned. So it just gives a sort of a a real overview of how these things are practically applied in the classroom. Exactly, I like how some of those teaching strategies can be applied ac across not only different contexts, but also from primary to secondary. Those pedagogical approaches, will, although they might c come across different in, in your classrooms and the way you present them as a, as a teacher, and that comes down to, to your individual skill as a teacher, but I love how they can uh, all connect through different subjects. And yeah. You warn against bumps in the road when trying to become a research-informed teacher or even a research-informed school. Can you share why it's important to, to expect a bump in the road? Simply because nothing is uh, easy and linear. Um, it takes a lot of time. So I think if you're considering trying to make yourself or your school or your department more research informed, you just have to be aware that things are not going to happen instantly. Um, our school is only a success when it comes to research informed practice because of a large group of people who have worked sort of away in the background to make people interested, intrigued and keen to trial strategies that are research informed. Um, a lot of that comes down to uh, our wonderful Director of Teaching and Learning, Sean Cumming, who is um, on Twitter as well. And she just has this uh, brilliant way of bringing people on board and showing them that change is not something to be worried about. But I think if you were to ask either of us about how long that has taken, um, you know, we would say this is this is five, six, seven years of a, of a journey. It's never going to be overnight. And it's certainly not something that's ever finished either. Um, the main bump you will probably come across is is resistance to change, as always. Um, and although you can do as much reading into change management as you like, there's only um, there's only so much that you can try and do in one go. Um, but I also think it's really important when it comes to changing something to to know what it is that you believe in and to stick to it. Because if you allow 
this idea that change is going to take a really long time. You have to do it really, really incrementally to take over. You can actually end up being a bit static. So you have to push forward at points, but you also have to know when to, to sort of step back and say, right now, this isn't the most important thing. Um, so as long as you're aware that there are going to be bumps in the road and that there are things that are going to be much, much bigger uh, than yourself or than your sort of vision, um, then you will make a success of it. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Uh, moving on to the second part of, of your book now. You offer up about 20 hours of, of CPD to a school or a, or a learning and teaching leader. Uh, are these based on the work that you have done and what is what were, what were was most successful about them? Yes, so the 20 hours of CPD resources that are available are a bit of an amalgamation of things that um, we have done in the past, things like twilight sessions. Um, I've run for the last, I want to say three years, it might be four years, but um, a group of uh, RQTs, so our second year teachers, they run action research projects. So I've, I've run that. So a lot of the um, resources come from those sessions as well as sessions that we've done with all staff. Um, and essentially, I've just sort of uh, mixed and matched different parts of the content from what works uh, best in order to try and present something that is quite a coherent plan that can take you from not being particularly research informed to being more research informed. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean you're research informed and that's it, job done by the end of the 20 hours, but it just is taking people on a journey dependent on their levels. So there are some parts that would be best um, used with new teachers, teachers that aren't particularly experienced, there are other parts that would be uh, best used with senior leaders and uh, people who are running, as you said, sort of teaching and learning. Um, they all focus on, on a slightly different uh, element. So some are very much about here's the information, here's where to find it, here's what being research informed means. And then there are other parts about this is the best way to impart this to other people. Um, so again, it can be really easily adapted. It's not there's not a steadfast rule that you have to use this uh, particular training plan with this particular PowerPoint, with this particular resource in this order. You can very much move things around dependent on your audience, dependent on your context. Um, one of the easiest things to probably split up actually is, is the plan for the inset day. Um, we, you know, we haven't had uh, inset days where we all sit in the hall uh, you know, for hours on end for, for a very long time now. We've had... Um, we do things much more in departments and then come back together and, and all sorts like that. So the inset day can really be easily split into sections that you could split up over a term, over the year if you wanted to. Um, or if you do still have like a full day of inset, it could also be used like that. But it's all stuff that's either been uh, trialled um, before or used before. Um, and the bits that didn't work very well, I've taken out and um, tweaked and kept kept the good bits in. Well, you've you've done a lot for for me as well and helped me, <laughs> helped me plan some of my I'm sure you've sure that others have benefited from that. And um, you encourage readers to to share their research informed journey, and you discuss the importance of engaging CPD that is right for for your context. Do you think that? this DIY approach is much more powerful than using limited budgets to buy in off the shelf CPD. I think you need an element of both still. Um, experts are a little bit back in fashion <laughs> after what's going on at the moment. But so I think we do have to, to listen to them. And I think if there are people offering up their time to talk to you about an area that you feel your school or your department could improve in, then it is worth looking into what they've got to say. But of course, budgets are limited. And again, I've talked a lot about context and I talk about that in the book a lot. If your staff have trialled a strategy, have found a way to improve whatever area of focus it is that they are looking at, and in the book I call those uh, PICO questions or PICO statements that they use and really encourage every individual to come up with their uh, their problem, their intervention, their comparison and their outcome, which is what PICO stands for. If you've spent uh, a couple of terms or a year where staff have become their own experts in that area, I think it would be really daft not to, to ask them to share and to ask them to uh, present to staff about something that they have embedded successfully or not with others. Um, some of our most 
useful CPD sessions have actually been our RQTs um, and teachers who have, have taken part in their own research, having done lots of reading and, and looked at the evidence, saying, we trialled this, um, but it didn't work as we thought it was going to. This was our outcome, and this is what we're going to change now for, for the next academic year. So I do think there are lots of excellent speakers out there. There's lots of excellent CPD that you can, you can find. Um, but you just have to make sure that you're doing it for the right reasons if you're buying something in or if you're asking someone in. And the right reason needs to be that that's what your staff or your students need in that moment in time, not that that's what is popular at the moment. Um, and so the only thing I'd add to that is that it can be really useful to have another voice sometimes. So I wouldn't dismiss it you know, immediately. Again, if you want people to go on a bit of a journey with you and agree with you, um, if you're the one who's bleating on about it all the time, and then that can become, uh, you know, it's a bit like wallpaper. It just sort of starts to become the norm. So it can be really useful to have an alternative voice. Um, but that doesn't mean that you couldn't find that in your own context. So finding that teacher who uh, is always questioning things, who is saying, oh, I don't want to do that necessarily, or I've done this before and I've seen it before. If you can get them on board and if you can use them to try and speak to other people, then that can be just as powerful as having somebody who's got a, a bit of a reputation uh, come in and talk about it, if not more powerful. I'd, I'd fully agree and, and echo that, that if, if, it's, if you're doing it for the right reason, it's for the for the benefit of, of the teachers and the, and the young people in your care, then absolutely why not? Um, Go that way. We've come to the end of the interview section, but before we move on to the to the final three questions, um, could you please share with the listeners where they could f find out a little bit more about you, where they could buy their book, and where they could engage more with you? Yeah, so um, I've always already mentioned, but I'm on Twitter as uh, at Miss J Ludd, uh, which is a dreadful reference to Jennifer Lopez from years ago, um, and. Um, I, I used to write a lot more on my blog. I'm hoping to get back more uh, doing that, but the book kind of took the writing out of me for a little bit of time. Um, so I sometimes write on my blog as well, which is the Little Miss Ludd uh, blog. And the book, uh, as you mentioned, is available via the Bloomsbury CPD library. And um, if you go onto their Bloomsbury website, you'll see all the different uh, books from their series, um, which again, follow a similar sort of format. And it's also available on Amazon. Thank you. And I'd encourage people to, that are interested in taking that research journey to, to go and read it. I've I read it quite a while ago, as I said, but I've I've dipped in and out back and forth and I'm still working my way through all the all the blogs and the books. Um <laughs> on, on to the final three questions now. Um yeah. first one there is is what book or text has had the biggest impact on your teaching career? Um I found this a really difficult one. There's so many uh texts that I've read um and ironically the one I can't remember the name of, um, and I've been looking to find it everywhere and I can't find it, was about curriculum development. So there was a book a long, long time ago that really helped me uh, get into reading. But the two that I would say have had the biggest impact, um, it's quite a recent one, but the Learning Scientist book, Understanding How We Learn, is just absolutely excellent. And um, actually that came from reading their blog. And so for for many years, they would, they were blogging via their Learning Scientist website. Um, and I think their uh, infographics are really, really helpful when I was first looking into uh, particular teaching and learning strategies. And then the, the book that they have written is just, again, has so much clarity. Um, and it's something I keep coming back to when I'm working with um, less experienced teachers as well and NQTs and photocopying pages for them. So it's uh, that's a, a really key book. Um, the other one, again, it came out quite a while ago, is um, Daniel T. Willingham's book, When Can You Trust the Experts, uh, which sort of says how to tell good science from bad in education. It's quite a complex text, um, and it's certainly one that I would really take your time to read, um, but it's so thorough, um, and it really starts to explain that link between uh, the the research itself, where it comes from, how to know whether or not we should trust it, what we should think about, uh, the way in which it has been um, collated and published. And it really makes you ask all the right questions about the research that you might then go on to look at. So I think those two texts are really helpful, but for different reasons. The second one then, if you could give one bit of advice to a teacher, what would it be? Based on my experience, I would say take one thing at a time and 
aim to improve just one thing a year. Um, every September we start thinking this is our year, this is the year everything's going to be different. But if you pick one thing at a time, try to embed it and don't magpie too much, you will see improvements in your teaching and in your students' outcomes. If you try to do everything at once, that's when mistakes happen, that's when trialing things falls apart. So take one thing at a time, one thing every year, we've got a lot of time to improve. <laughs> I, something I've read quite a lot is that we have a long career. If we if, <laughs> yeah. you, if you start trying to do too many things at once, take, take your time and and it takes a yeah, while. You don't to... want to peak too soon. <laughs> you, you certainly <laughs> don't. Um, the final question is something that really fascinate, fascinates me is, what do you think most gets in the way of, of great teaching in our classrooms? I would say us. I think we get in way of our own teaching ourselves. Um, I think this comes a little bit from our sort of often a feeling that we need to fix everything and that we need to be the ones fixing things. Um, but we don't and we can't. Um, I know many teachers, myself included, worry about the time that we have to do things and the part that not having time or the lack of time plays in what we do. Um, but if being in isolation and <laughs> quarantined at the moment tells us everything or anything, um, I think that that isn't necessarily true. Um, we just need to sometimes put our own desire to fix things uh, a little bit further down the pile and um, focus and start, sort of stand back and remember what it is that we're, we're really there for. Um, I think teaching is, is absolutely vital, it's important, but it's, and it's complex and exhausting, um, but it isn't the end of the world if everything isn't marked. It's not the end of the world if something isn't quite as perfect as we'd hoped it to be. And I think we quite often need to just stand back, take ourselves out of the picture a little bit and look at what's happening. Uh, around us so I think we can be our biggest barrier um, and I think sometimes again as with the questions we talked about earlier spending some time reflecting on that can make the world a difference thank you very much that was that was some very very wise words there and, and <laughs> you've been the first person to, to to outline that we get we get in the way ourselves I think that's a, a wonderful <laughs> wonderful end to that I'd like to take this opportunity now to thank you thank you very much for giving me your time and for being being truly wonderful throughout and I th hope that I'm positive that the listeners will, will take a lot out of that so thank you very much no thank you very much indeed it's been wonderful Thank you for listening to the Becoming Educated podcast. Until next time, teach with joy.